Good morning. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. We're continuing in our sermon series called Explore God. And this morning we're asking the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? And it's a really tough question. So before we get into the details, will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here today be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. What might you have been doing at 3.58 p.m. on Saturday, December 25th, 2004? If your family exchanges Christmas presents, then most likely you'd already opened your gifts. If you were a kid who had received gifts, most likely by this time you would have already been bored with them. Um, Maybe you were just waking up from that wonderful kind of Christmas afternoon nap, and you were just starting to think about which version of the Hallmark cheesy Christmas movie the family would be watching that evening. Things were different, though. In Banda Aceh, Indonesia. For them, it was already 12.58 a.m. on Sunday morning. Banda Aceh is a city of roughly 300,000 people. But within the next hour, 31,000 of them, men, women, and children, would be dead in the streets. And tens of thousands more of them would be either missing or seriously injured. It was the third largest earthquake ever recorded on a seismograph. It had the longest duration of faulting, the shifting of the earth's plates, ever observed, about 10 minutes. It caused the entire planet to vibrate nearly half an inch. And it ended up triggering several other earthquakes that reached as far as Alaska. And worst of all, as you know, it caused a whole series of enormous tsunamis, some reaching up to 100 feet tall, to crash onto the Indonesian mainland without even a hint of public warning. There just wasn't enough time. It was moving that fast. All in all... 14 countries around the Indian Ocean were affected, a massive area, and 227,898 people were confirmed either dead or missing. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in all of recorded history, and certainly the most deadly natural disaster of the 21st century so far. And yet those numbers and statistics, sometimes they can have the effect on us that we hardly even blink. I suspect that many of us didn't even recognize the date when I mentioned it. It's as if whenever we hear of a tragedy, there's this deep-seated psychological defense mechanism that goes to work. We think to ourselves that these sorts of things 
happen to other people. They happen to poor people. Or they happen to people who don't take the necessary precautions. Or we tell ourselves that if we only get the right people into office and get our social systems right, these sorts of things will never happen again. But then suffering hits closer to home. It reaches our side of the Pacific. When terrorists ram two planes into the World Trade Center towers and our national illusion of safety and invincibility is utterly shattered. When the school shooting epidemic reaches epic proportions just down I-81. When the mass scale company layoffs lead to a very curt, matter-of-fact email that lands in your inbox. When the divorce rate affects you. When the cancer rate affects you. When the astronomical growth of mental health problems, depression, anxiety, addiction, affects you. Then what? Or more like, then why? Why? That's the bigger question. It's the better question. It's also the much harder question. You see, all human beings, Christian or not, are driven by this sort of inner compulsion to make sense of the world as a meaningful cosmos. But in order to do that, we have to make sense of suffering. We have to make sense of all the ways in which our world that seems orderly acts up, acts out of line from time to time. And if a culture fails to do that, if it fails to bestow meaning on people's real life experiences of pain and suffering, if it fails to comfort people in their miseries, if it fails to provide the resources to people to endure all the horrible kinds of suffering and evil, then that culture loses credibility. It doesn't deserve anyone's loyalty because it simply can't account for the sheer toughness of reality. So how does Christianity make sense of pain and suffering? How does it deal with evil? And what does the Bible have to say to us when the life rug gets pulled out from under us and tragedy hits close to home? Well, the answer might surprise you because the Bible doesn't give us a philosophical explanation. And it doesn't give us pat answers that we're accustomed to or cutesy spiritual cliches that serve as a sort of anesthesia that masks the pain of what's really going on while not getting to the heart of the problem. No, what the Bible gives us and what we need more than anything else in those moments when we're experiencing the deepest and most heart-wrenching pain is a story. Our suffering needs a context. Our suffering needs a story. 
Have you ever been suffering? Someone sits down with you and explains it away. Or gives you these pat answers that are intended to make you feel better, but really what you just need is someone to sit down with you and commiserate with you. That's what the Bible gives to us. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to our Old Testament reading, Job chapter 1. It's just shy of the halfway mark in the Bible, right before the book of Psalms. Job is a book about suffering. And even its very layout points to its purpose. It's long, it's confusing, it's draining. To read the book of Job is to suffer. (laughs) But it's worth it. If for nothing else, then it's raw, real depiction of what it looks like to walk through pain and suffering as an ordinary human being. Look with me at the opening verses of chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And then we hear about his wealth in verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So right away, we're introduced to this extraordinary man. He's not an Israelite, but he fears and obeys Israel's God faithfully. He's a good man. He's got a good heart and a great reputation. And he has the perfect family. Seven sons and three daughters. The number's... Seven and three being typical Old Testament symbols for wholeness and perfection. Job's living the good life. And it's because, so we're led to think, it's because he's wise. He's learned how to navigate God's complex world successfully. He's doing it all right. He's putting God first. And God's blessing him. And now he's the greatest man, and by that we mean the richest man, in all of what today we might call the Middle East. So if you've Googled those gigantic princes' palaces in the Middle East, that's Job. But trouble's afoot, isn't it? In verse 6, we're introduced to this mysterious figure. The Bible calls him the Satan. And God says to Satan... How about that Job? What a guy. Look how blameless he is. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I call a human. And Satan says, as if. He says, Job only loves you because you spoil him. He says, take away all his stuff. That's what he really loves. And then you'll see who he really is. And so astonishingly, mysteriously, God lets Satan test Job. And all of a sudden, Job's perfect world begins to crumble and fissure and fall apart. Maybe you've gotten a phone call and you could tell by your brother's voice or your mom's tone 
that you were about to get bad news. Well, in verses 13 through 19 of chapter 1, Job receives four calls in a row. And each of these calls brings worse news than before, just one right after the other. So first, a marauding group of Sabians kill his servants and take his oxen. And we're not talking about like someone taking your dog. We're talking about someone taking your entire wealth and savings. Second, a fire destroys all his sheep and even more of his servants. Third, a raiding force of Chaldeans come and kill his servants and take his camels. And at this point, Job is beside himself with grief. His wealth is gone. His business is over. At least he still has his family. But then in verse 18, the last messenger comes and says, your family is dead. And if that weren't enough, it just keeps coming. Then Satan turns on Job himself. Chapter 2, verse 7, Satan strikes Job with loathsome sores all over his body. And so you can just imagine Job now sitting in the ash heap that was once his house. He's beside himself with grief, moaning and groaning, and scraping the sores with a broken piece of pottery that used to be on his mantle. His own body has become an object of disgust for him. He's undone. And yet the narrator tells us at the end of verse 10 that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when tragedy like this strikes, it's only natural for us to want an explanation, to explain it somehow. And that's what happens around Job. The vast majority of the book, from chapters 3 to 38, lets us in on how Job's friends and his wife try to make sense of all that's going on with him. It's these pat responses, the kind that are still around today in some version. We see two versions of these responses in what follows. First response is the seemingly religious answer. And it comes from Job's friends. They're all wondering what secret sin Job committed. So Eliphaz, real great guy, says later in the book, what do you know that we don't know? In other, in other words, what'd you do, Job? Spit it out. It's the seemingly religious answer to suffering. The conventional wisdom... That says, if you obey God, he'll bless you. And if you disobey God, he'll punish you 100% of the time. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Plug your situation in and poof. That's why you're suffering. It's just not always true. There are huge limitations to those kinds of statements. And it's a terrible thing, particularly when churches say stuff like this. I remember these sorts of conversations happening around the time that Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Surely this happened because of the wickedness of that city. Surely if they'd just done something about Bourbon Street, this wouldn't have happened. This could have all been avoided. 
God was judging them. But that's far too simplistic. Would anyone even dare to say the same thing about the Newtown Elementary School shootings? Who was God judging then? It's absurd. And I mean that in the most logical sense. It takes a general piece of wisdom about what it looks like to obey God and follow Jesus, and it puts it as a blanket statement across all situations everywhere. God's wisdom is far more complex than that. It's so complex that we can't even begin to fully understand it. There really is a sort of suffering that seems senseless and feels hopeless. Let's just call a spade a spade. Suffering is really, really hard. And sometimes what makes it so doggone hard is that it just doesn't make sense. The second response is cynicism. Chapter 2, verse 9, when Job's wife sees him worshiping God after all he's been through, she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just give up, she says. Life stinks. Everything's random. Nothing matters. Can't you see that, Job? Can't you see that God doesn't give a rip of what you're going through right now? So here are the two responses to suffering. You've got the seemingly religious answer on the one side, and you have the cynical answer on the other side. And by the time we get to chapter 16, Job just comes right out and says it and says, you guys are miserable comforters. Like, I need some new friends, big time. These answers, Job says, don't make sense. They put God on a leash. They make the wild, unpredictable creator seem tame and predictable. And worst of all, they don't help me endure what I'm going through one bit. Are we starting to get the point of Job? He's telling us, you can't philosophize yourself through evil. You can't always trace your suffering back to something you either did or didn't do. And you can't always know what God is up to when you're going through it. Sometimes the only thing you can do is to grit your teeth and hang on to God for dear life. Don't look for a reason. Don't paint over your pain with religious platitudes. And don't give up. Trust God with everything you've got, even if it feels like nothing. Surround yourself with good friends who can help you do that. Keep believing that for all the mystery, for all the things you don't understand, God really is good and God really does love you. And then ask him to help you endure your suffering with strength, to survive this season of pain without losing the very best parts of yourself. There is a kind of suffering, a deep and profound suffering, long and protracted kind, when that's all you can do. You just wait it out and wait for God.
And you know, maybe that's what the length of the book of Job is telling us. Job waited and waited and waited. And not only did he have to endure his suffering, he had to endure his his crummy friends. And look, there were many times when it wasn't pretty for Job. There were times when he got really mad at God, when he was confused, when he was scared and defensive and reactionary and all the other things that you and I would feel if we were in that exact same situation. The Bible gives us those details to show us that suffering can be really messy. It's a slog. And we can't always expect to come out of it with flying colors or to come through it and receive a purple heart for bravery. It's an emotional journey, a wild emotional journey with lots of potholes and breakdowns on the side of the road. But you know what? God is okay with that. God is okay with giving you the freedom to voice all those visceral feelings and emotions that come with heartbreak and pain. He's not there to judge you, but he is there to hold you and to love you and to give you a shoulder to cry on and to give you his full attention even while you're screaming at him. That's okay. He wants you to know in those moments that you can do that with him, that you're safe with him. It takes 38 chapters for God to finally respond to Job. And even when he does respond, it's not at all what Job expects. You see, Job expected God to give him an explanation. And Job's friends expected God to give him a condemnation. I'm turning Baptist, aren't I? But instead... What God does is challenges Job to see the depths of his mystery and wisdom. Look with me at chapter 38. Long way away. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? (laughs) Now, this sounds strong to us, doesn't it? Here's this man. He's just gone through the rack of grief. And God says this to him. Well, on the one hand, it shouldn't surprise us. This is the Almighty God actually breaking his silence and speaking. It's going to be powerful. But even through this strong, challenging language, God has not come to judge or crush Job. What he's doing is he's actually reaching out to him in grace. It's hard to see, but let me just show you two things. For one thing, notice in verse 1, it says, The Lord answered Job. When the word Lord is in all caps like that, it's referring to the personal, 
covenant name of God, which, by the way, has been almost completely absent from the book until now. This is the God who wants to be known. This is the God who saves and rescues and protects. And secondly, notice it says that the Lord answered Job. Now, what might look pretty generic to us is actually quite significant. Because in the Hebrew language, to speak to someone was to enter into a one-way communication of, of authority to an inferior. But to answer or to reply to someone was to enter into a real and deeply personal conversation. You see, God is inviting Job into a relationship, into an even deeper relationship than when he had God plus everything. This is love on the other side of pain. This is love for love itself. The kind of love we might see in an older couple who've walked through so much pain and suffering together, who've shared so much heartbreak together, who've argued and made up and come back together so many times that they can simply sit in silence in the restaurant, completely content. For what it's worth, Job does have a happy ending. God ends up rebuking Job's friends and their bad advice, and he restores Job's fortunes and makes him even greater than before. And Job lives out the rest of his days loving God with a new and deep, uh, deeper love for him and trust in him. But it's still a story looking for a conclusion. And that's the tension we feel when we suffer or when we watch with horror as tragedy strikes again and again and we wonder what in the world God is up to and what he's going to do about it. And fortunately, he gives us a clue. Turn with me finally to our gospel reading, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. In this chapter, Jesus is visiting the family of his deceased friend Lazarus. And when he gets to the tomb in verse 38, most translations say he was deeply moved again or he groaned in himself. But these translations are weak because the Greek word here means to bellow with anger. It's a startling term. B.B. Warfield was a Presbyterian theologian at Princeton in the early 20th century. He wrote a really important essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Here's what he says about John 11. He says, What John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. Now, why is that? What is Jesus so angry about? He goes on. When Jesus saw the distress of Mary and her companions, it enraged him because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. Inextinguishable fury seizes upon him 
His whole being is discomposed and perturbed. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. He says, what John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. Our suffering needs a story. And the Bible tells us a story that stands unique in all of the world's greatest literature, in the world's theories and visions. It's the story of the Creator God taking responsibility for what evil has done to His creation. Of Jesus bearing the weight of all of its problems on His own shoulders. Some of you have suffered unimaginably. The loss of a child. I can't imagine anything more difficult. The death of a spouse. Chronic illness. A lifetime of rejection and bullying that's relentless. And these things, they can't be explained away. I don't know why God has allowed you to suffer like this. But I do know this. That whatever pain and suffering you do walk through, Jesus is right beside you. He's walking with you. He's weeping with you. But perhaps best of all, and here's a picture we don't think about enough. He is furious. Like a mother bear whose cubs are in danger, Jesus is bellowing with anger for you. And one day, he'll take his vengeance on evil itself. He'll kill it once and for all. The dead will be raised. Creation will be healed. Everything sad in an instant will come untrue. Until then, we wait and we weep. But most importantly, we keep telling the story of a God who took our death, our pain, and suffering, all of it upon himself so that we could take his life into us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.